0: Um, and if, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have them on the back table, we'd love uh, to give that to you as our gift, so feel free, run back, grab one, um, if that would be helpful to you. Um, or if you want to follow along uh, as a kid, um, whether you're a kid or a kid at heart, uh, we have the Kids Connect sheet, the green sheets on the back table as well, go back and grab those, if that would be helpful um, to you. Well, uh, what I want to do is, is read our passage, Genesis 37, uh, verses 3 through 11, then I'll pray for us and, uh, and jump in uh, to this morning. So, here's the word of the Lord. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father God, we come now to, to hear from you. God, we, we spend this week doing a lot of talking, um, and I'm going to do more talking over the next few minutes, but God, what we don't need are, are more words from, from human beings. What we need is, is your word. And so Jesus promised that he had, he had water that if we came and drank, drank it, we would never thirst again. And so God, would you give that to us through your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is week two in our series on virtues and vices, which is a series exactly like what it sounds like. It's a series about the seven capital vices and virtues that are in contrast to those, those vices. And when we talk about seven capital vices, what we mentioned last week is that the vices aren't necessarily the worst things that human beings can do. All right, so the vice tradition did not come by, by us sitting down as human beings and think, like, what are the worst possible things human beings do? Um, have done in the world, like, uh, like root for the Oakland Raiders, or uh, I'm trying as a cheese fan, I guess, but, uh, or drive fast in the, the interstate, um, or drive slow in the left lane of the interstate. Um, they're not the worst things we can do. They're patterns, they're habits, they're, they're ways of engaging, um, ways of engaging, inhabiting our life that, that lead us just to react in ways that are, are vice-filled, that are evil, that are sinful. But virtues, in contrast, are patterns of, of life habits, ways we engage life that, that lead to flourishing, that lead to love of neighbor, to the good of, of others. And so our fundamental conviction in this series has been that if, if you're not pursuing a life of virtue, if you're not working hard at a life of virtue, you're going you're gonna to live a life of vice. If you don't run after virtue, you're going to be trampled by, by vice that if you don't do the hard work of of looking yourself in the mirror and and assessing who you really are as a person, then vice vice is going to trample you, run you over, and leave you for dead. But a virtuous life, it takes takes significant effort. A life filled with vice, on the other hand, that's natural, that's easy, that comes to us. And so as Christians, even though we don't believe effort is what saves us, we're saved by grace, not not by works. But as Christians, we believe we should make an effort into a virtuous life. And so the next, the next seven weeks, we want to make that effort together. We want to talk about what it means to live a virtuous life, to pursue a virtuous life. And so today, we're going to look at the virtue of kindness and the vice of envy. And envy, it, it is unlike the other seven vices we will, we will look at. It's unique in, in, in a significant way, a way that Joseph Epstein in his book Envy Put like this: As of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. Let me explain why. What he means? Now, I, I played golf um, competitively for for several years in high school, um, a year in college, and the best round I ever shot in competitive golf was uh, was two, two under for for nine hole match and so I was thrilled that was a hard it was a hard to do and it was a hard day the wind was blowing pretty pretty hard and so I helped our team win a, an important match and I was thrilled my, my best friend Mitch uh, started walking towards me after the round I was already done and, and word of my my round had already got to him um, and so he yells out to me as he's walking towards me uh, hey I, I heard you shot two under today I was like yeah man it was fun I, did, I, I played well and and he shouted back to me after that uh, oh good now you have another reason to feel like you're better than other people just like came out of nowhere, and he just walked past me. That's like he said that and just walked past me, and I was like, all right, I guess, guess that's the end of that conversation, and, and so I was stunned. A few days later, we, we sat down to talk. Mitch and I were good friends. He was, um, he was a Christian. We went to the same church, and, and so he apologized, and we began to unpack what happened, and what he told me was that he, he was jealous of me because I, I was better at golf than, than he was, and he had not played well that day, and, and so me shooting really well had just made him even angrier and even more frustrated, and So he just told me, "I'm I'm jealous of you," and I couldn't, I couldn't share in your success. And so, for a moment, that made me feel really good about myself. The problem was all his, not mine, right? Like he was repenting to me; I was the one in the clear. Um, Which, of course, those are the moments when God starts to get at your heart and be like, "No, actually, you're a terrible person too." And so, um, so I began to, I began to realize in that moment um, that I've been doing the same thing. I've been doing the same thing to him. Um, that up until junior high, I was <clears throat> I wasn't one of the best basketball players in my grade. But I was one of the better ones. I'd been on some all star teams, and and it, it had played quite a bit. And and when I got to junior high, to seventh grade, um, I did not make the team. I got I got cut. Um, and my friend Mitch, who at that point, up to that point, had not been as good at me at basketball, he made the team because because Mitch was six seven. And in basketball, that's important, right? Being six seven, you can't you can't coach that. You can't try for that. Um, and so I hated that, the fact that he made the team, I, I didn't. And so anytime, anytime I beat him on one-on-one, I, I wasn't just thrilled that I won. I was thrilled that he lost. It was proof I'm better than him. When he made a mistake in a basketball game, I sort of secretly smiled to myself. See, I'm, I'm better than him. That was a mistake. The reality was Mitch, Mitch was envious at me because I was better at golf than him, and I was envious at him because he was better at basketball than me, and so we sat there talking about this with one another, um, having no idea why we're destroying this friendship over this. Envy—it's the only sin that is no fun at all for anybody. And so maybe you hear that story and and you see yourself in that. Maybe you hear that story and you think this is this is week two of a vice series, and both weeks, Tim, you've talked about your your behavior on the golf course. Maybe like maybe golf is what is causing vice in your life. You should quit. Um, or maybe, maybe uh, you just think, well, that's not me, I don't, I don't have envy, I don't see myself in that, that story. Well, we need to look deeper, because that was my first reaction to envy when I first got into this sermon. But the more I pressed in, the more I see this at work in my own heart. So I want to do, through this story in Genesis 37, is look at envy uh, under three headings. Um, what it is, what envy is, how it grows in us, how it goes to work on us, um, and thirdly, the only way you and I can overcome it. Um, so first, uh, what is envy? Well, Rebecca DeYoung, in her, in her book, um, Glittering Vices, she, she has a good definition for it, which is, envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. Which I confess, whether in pride or ignorance, at first didn't apply to me. Like, it didn't sound like I had that problem. Um, but the more I began to study into this, the story of Joseph and his brothers, the more I began to study into what envy is, how Christian thinkers have thought about envy, I began to see sort of three qualities that are true of envy that are at work um, in me in significant ways. And I'm sure at work in you. Three three sort of diagnostics about envy um, that show it's at work in you. And first, the first one being, uh, the envy starts with feeling inferior. And so in Genesis 37, what you have is you have, you have 12 brothers, one of whom, Joseph, is loved more than the other brothers by his father. Right, so 11 brothers loved less than than our father, than the, by the by the father than the one brother, and, and the father even does a way or does something to sort of uh, highlight this or strengthen this. He he gives Joseph a coat of colors, like almost a way of saying to the other brothers, oh yeah, I love him more than all of you, right? He just just ways of, of nitpicking at them, which which is what makes envy so dangerous to us. That the brothers have a legitimate frustration toward their father here. He's playing favorite with his favorites with his kids, with his sons. And the reality is many of us many of us have feelings of inferiority or feelings of lack because people who were supposed to, to affirm us or love us in particular ways they didn't Whether it was a parent, whether it was a spouse, whether it was a friend, a family member they failed us. They did not love us, they did not have, And so we wonder, am I enough? Am I good enough? Am I less? And those feelings, those are those are the beginnings, the the breeding ground, the soil ripe for envy. So if you've ever felt inferior, you have soil for envy already at work in you. And so, so Gregory the Great, who was a Christian thinker, he lived in the 600 ADs, um, he talked about envy. It ultimately leads us to hatred, but we tend to think of hating other people, but that's not what Gregory the Great started. What he said is it, it, it actually leads to self-hatred first, envy that you have a hard time loving yourself because you, can't see, you see your own inadequacies, you see your own lack, your inferiority, and when you look at someone else and you see something they're good at or something they're, they're blessed with and you look, at your, you look back at yourself and your own inferiority, it amplifies your inferiority, it amplifies your, your lack. Here's how Rebecca, Rebecca Young puts that. She says, The envious person resents another person's good um, good gifts because they're superior to his or her own. But it's not just the other person is better. It's that by comparison, their own or their superior makes, superiority makes you feel your own lack, your own inferiority more acute, acutely, acutely. Now, the good news is here is if you've never felt inferior, and if you've never felt a sense of lack, and you've only felt complete affirmation of who you are, and your self-identity has from the beginning of your birth been completely at rest within you, never felt inferior at any, at any point in your life, then you'll never struggle with envy. For the rest of us, which is all of us, um, you have soil within you that, even if you think this isn't relevant for you now, it is. the The starting point is there for all of us. Sometimes not because of anything done, nothing, anything we've done, but what's been done to us, like the brothers. So envy starts with feeling inferior. Uh, second, envy is it's fueled by comparison. That we live in a, a culture where comparison is—it's a way of life. And so, as a pastor, I've. I felt this. Pastors, in some ways, were the worst at this. That when pastors get together, we talk about um, how many people attend. What's your attendance, right? So we size up who's who compares better. Um, We we compare budget size, right? How much can you do? How much money can you give away? Uh, We we um, we compare buildings and building programs, which is one I always lose in. Right? I drive around drive around Kansas City and I I see these beautiful church buildings, and uh, and we meet in a place with pink flamingos on the wall. Apparently. Uh, Right? I don't win that battle um, ever. And, and even though, in many cases, some of the beautiful church buildings I drove by took decades, centuries um, to, to build, um, and we're two years old, still that comparison, it, it breeds um, something in you. But beyond that, we live in a culture where there's just all kinds of opportunities for you to compare yourself with, with one another. And social media, for example, it's a breeding ground for comparison of your life to others. And I want, to be, I want to be careful here because social media, uh, as we've talked about this week as pastors, it's not the problem, but it's, it's created opportunities for, for a couple of the vices in particular. Um, envy this week, and next week we'll talk more about it in Vainglory. But what we're not saying is that like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, those are vices themselves. They're not, but they, they create more opportunity for you and I to compare our lives against, against others. Right? We scroll on our feed and we're instantly comparing um, our kids, our vacations, um, our cars, our our lives to other people. and comparison fuels envy that was what the, that's what it was at the heart of my fight with my friend Mitch was that I was envious and comparing um, one thing basketball to him. he was comparing another thing to me but the reality was we were both living in the space of comparison, and we were not able to, to champion the other person's good. I mean, Mitch became a really good basketball player, and I, for a long time, couldn't celebrate that because I was harboring envy towards him. So this comparison game, who, who are your, you comparing yourself to? The who do you look at, and it, it frustrates you, that they, they have more or they're better than you? The envy it starts with the fact we feel we're lacking something we're inferior. It it's it, it's fueled by comparison. We compare ourselves to other our self worth to others. Um, thirdly, envy it destroys it destroys love. And there's this progression to envy. It starts with it starts with feeling your own inferiority. Your sort of self hatred. You're not able to actually love yourself um, for who you are. And that means then you can't love your neighbor because Jesus said love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you can't love yourself, you can't love your neighbor in the right way, and then beyond that even, when we look at other people and see what they've been given, what, they've, what they have in their, their lives, which really, truly, their talents, in some cases, the life they started with, it's a gift from God. If you, can't, if you can't be grateful that God has given them to that, well, then you become better towards God, and you start looking at God and saying, why did they get that, and I get this? Why, why did you give them that, and not me? And so you're, you're, listen, you can't love yourself. You can't love your neighbor. You can't love, love God, do you see yourself in any of, of that? And do you see why Joseph Epstein said, you know, of all the sins, this one, is, it's no fun for anybody. So that's, that's what envy is. It's, it's inferiority. It's comparison. It destroys our capacity to love. Um, Secondly, how does envy grow in us? What does that look like? And in Genesis 37, you get this progression through, um, through the story that it starts in verse, verse 4, where we're told um, the brothers, because their father loved Joseph more than them, they hated him. They hated Joseph and could not speak peacefully to him. Then, verse 5 and 8, it says they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 11, we're told they're jealous. Of him, and then verse eighteen. Finally, um, we didn't read this, but when Joseph comes out to see them at one point, he says they conspired against him to kill him. And My fear is that we're going to hear that progression and think, "Well, I I would never sell anyone into slavery. I would never think of murdering anyone. And therefore, envy is not a problem for me." Um, and if that's what you think, not so fast. We need to walk through this progression because as you walk through the progression, it's easy to see yourself um, here in this space. In the in this space that. The first thing that happens with envy is that peaceful words disappear. And that's how it starts with the brothers. They hate him and they cannot speak peacefully to him. And so I would just ask, who, who do you have a hard time speaking peaceful to? Who do you have a hard time encouraging? Who do you have a hard time um, saying nice words? Who, who gets mostly sarcasm or sharp words from you? That, that an inability to speak peacefully to someone else, it's, it's not necessarily a problem of anger. It may be, it may be envy. That's where it starts. Peaceful words disappear. Second, passive-aggressive attacks increase. And one thing we have to understand um, um, about this story is that in this day, dreams were were very, very culturally important. Um, In our day, dreams less so, but in that day, dreams were incredibly important. And it was thought often that if you got a dream, it it may have been the God or or the gods telling you what's going to happen, making a prediction, giving you a warning, telling you what to do about something. So Joseph has two dreams that are exactly that. He's being told what's going to happen. And granted, Joseph like, does not handle this in a healthy way, right? Going to your brothers and telling them, hey, I had a dream where uh, you bowed down to me. Like, that's not a humble act. He could have, he could have d- done this better. And yet the brothers recognize something important is happening here. Because the way they respond to that um, is, is a passive-aggressive attack on, on, on Joseph, right? Shall you rule over us? All right, are you going to reign over us, Joseph? Is that what you're telling us? So Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices, she says, argues at length, that, that if, you have, if you are passive aggressive, that is a sign envy is at work in you. Because if you feel a sense of, of self-worth, if you feel like someone else maybe is more superior, better than you, you don't confront them directly. You just, you just pass, you get them from the side, you passively aggressive go after them. You don't question them forthrightly, you come at them from, from an angle so passive aggressiveness, um, an inability to speak peacefully to someone else. Those are signs of envy. Third, and this is where it, gets to get, it begins to get more serious. Third, destruction is, is desired. So as I said, the, the brothers, they go off to tend to some sheep. Joseph goes out to meet them. And as he's walking out to meet them, the brothers, the brothers say this. They, say, uh, they saw them from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now that's envy at full strength. It's, it's not jealousy, right? It's not looking at what someone else has and, and wishing you had it. It's not covetousness. It's, they're not looking at Joseph saying, we wish that our father loved us the way he loved you. Now, what, what envy does is you, you begin to want to see the, the person fall. You want to see them fail. You want to see them destroyed. And it's important to distinguish between just what jealousy is, what coveting is, and what envy is, this active desire to see destruction. Um, And Joseph Epstein, his book Envy, he tells a really helpful kind of illustration story um, to define the difference between, this isn't jealousy, this is envy, this is slightly, slightly different. Here's a story, the illustration he tells. He says, there's there's three people. There's an English woman, a Frenchman, and a Russian. And each of them was given one wish by a genie. The Englishwoman said that a friend of hers has a cottage and that she wants a similar cottage, but with two additional bedrooms and a second bath. The Frenchman says that his best friend has a, a beautiful blonde mistress, and he would like a mistress for himself, but he wants a redhead instead of a blonde and one that's even more beautiful and more cultured than his friend's mistress. The Russian, when asked what he would like, tells of a neighbor of his that has a cow that gives vast quantities of milk, heaviest cream, the purest butter. I want that cow, the Russian tells the genie, dead. That's envy. Now have you ever felt the joy of someone else failing? But do you actively want others to fail? Have you taken the disappointment in the, the fall of, of another? That if someone got a promotion over you did, you, did you hope that they made a mistake and embarrassed themselves in some way? That when someone is brought down a level, do you, do you smile a bit? That's where envy goes next. It's not, just, it's not just hatred in your heart. It's not just jealousy. It begins to actively desire for the other person to fall. But then it goes a step further. It's not just destruction is desired, but destruction then is something you pursue for that person. And so in just a few verses, the brothers will go from um, complaining about the fact that Joseph's father loves them, him more than them to actually actively plotting to, to take his life, to murder him. And what they end up doing is they, they throw him in a pit and they sell him off into slavery, um, telling their father that, um, that Joseph died and was killed by animals. And this is where again, like I think we might be tempted to sit back and say, "Well, that like that's not me. Like I don't, I've never murdered anybody, so envy's not a problem for me, right? Like I haven't, I haven't thrown anyone in a pit and sold them into slavery. So this, this isn't me. And yet, um, yet I would say probably all of us have at some point actively tried to destroy someone else's reputation, um, someone else's is um, view of someone else in the eyes of, of others. That, that, for example, like what, what's gossip? What is slander? It's a word spoken about someone with the aim to knock them down, to make them a l- little bit less in the eyes of those who are listening. It's to take their reputation and throw it in a pit. Make them look like a slave, like someone who's less. And the reality is, I, I hope envy will never take any of us to murder or to actively uh, destroying someone else by throwing them into slavery. I hope, I hope you'll never do that. Like, that's the worst form of envy. And yet, I see myself on every step of the way to that point. I've been able to speak peaceably to others. I've been the master of passive aggressiveness. I've desired the failures of others in my heart. I've I've gossiped, I've slandered. The only thing I haven't done is murdered. So it's hard for me to sit back and say, you know, envy just sounds like someone else's problem. Which is, of course, that's Jesus' whole point when he he said to his disciples, if you've you've been angry with someone in your heart, you've you've already murdered them. You've already murdered them in your heart, and I think Jesus has envy in mind there because anger, anger by itself is not a sin in the Bible. And so, what Jesus says, if you've been angry, you've already murdered them in your heart. What, what he, I think He's clearly saying is, if you've had the anger at someone where you've wanted them to fall, you've wanted them to, if you wanted to knock them down, you're you're on the path to murder. Jesus says you're on the you're, you're headed that way. You just maybe haven't had the opportunity yet. And so, envy it's it's a problem for me. It's a problem for for you. So how? How do we overcome it? How do we get free of it? Well, going back to 2 Peter 1, where we were last week, kind of the passage we've said is, is our framework to understand virtues and vices over the next few weeks. Um, One of the central verses was was verse 5, 2 Peter 1, verse 5, um, that said this. It said, "For, For this reason, because you're a Christian, because God has saved you, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Now, Peter is saying two things, though. The first thing he's saying is you need, as a Christian, to make every effort to be a virtuous person. If you're, if you're going to kill envy within you, you have to make an effort at a virtuous life. So how do we make, how do we make an effort to, be, um, to not be envious? How do we make an effort to kill the envy within us? Well, what we said last week is you, you have to run after virtue so that trample, uh, vice does not trample you. And, and the way that we run after virtue with respect to, um, to envy is you need to run after kindness. I would say envy, envy dies where kindness dwells. So you need to cultivate a habit of kindness within you. Because you, we listen, we have habits of envy that are already there. And so you need to root those out and replace them with, with roots of kindness. So how do you and I get habits of kindness? How do we become kind people through, through, through new patterns, new, new habits? And, and I would say the key spiritual discipline, the key habit for you to engage in, to create a, a life of kindness is the habit of service. You need to engage in the habit of service. If vice is a deeply rooted um, pattern in you, and envy is that vice, you need to replace it with another habit, and that habit is, is service. Because in service, what you do is you intentionally put yourself in a lower position to those around you. You basically say, I'm giving up the comparison game. I choose the lower spot, and I'm going to serve serve you. And that's why this morning we've, we've tried to open up a number of avenues for you uh, for next steps to serve um, this morning that I realize it can sound, you know, kind of forced or, or, uh, or with, a, with a need behind it for us in a church plant. We need you to serve in, in many ways. But the reality is I, I do not believe you can be a kind person if you're not in a habit of serving people around you. And not, not in a sense of like, hey, try really hard to find examples. No, I mean you, you set a time a week, every week that's the same time, and you say, I'm going to go and serve in that hour. And it's not about me. I'm lowering myself. And I hope, I hope you find ways to do that in your workplace. Right, a regular habit, something you do, other people will not do. That, that, that's a way of lowering yourself. I hope you do it here at church. Right, We need lots of help with respect to children's ministry and set up and tear down and hospitality, all those things. But we don't, I don't want you to do that. Um, that's not why, why we're saying that as a sense of need. It's, it's truly in a sense of if you don't serve your church, you're not going to have a habit of kindness within you. I hope you do that in your home. You find ways to serve your family and, and their regular rhythms. Again, not, right, not like just momentary decisions. I mean, you, you pick a time and you go that time every week and you serve. You lower yourself. You drop yourself out of comparison and you choose the lower, lower spot. Find spaces to serve. Whatever they are, find them to serve. So envy, envy, envy dies where kindness dwells. So where are you cultivating kindness in, in your heart, in your life? The reality is, even if you make every effort, that's not enough. We need more. And Peter knew we need more, which is, which is why he, he doesn't just say, make every effort to be virtuous. He doesn't say that. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And what does that mean? All right, what is faith? Our faith for us Christians is, is that we come to God and we say, God, I'm not good enough to be, to be yours. I'm not good enough to go to heaven. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. But... I come to you and trust you to save me through the blood of Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ. That's what faith is, is we believe God saves us, not because we're good in and of ourselves, but because he is good and has provided a way for us through, through Jesus. So, so Peter says, supplement that reality, your faith, that God will save you. Supplement that with virtue. So how then does faith, how does faith help us be virtuous? How does faith help envy die in us? Remember the roots? The roots of envy are, are really two things. They are the fact that we feel inferior, that we feel like we lack, we're not enough. And then it's, it's fueled by the fact we compare ourselves to others, and we see they're better. They have more. So how do you get to this place where you can stop comparing and rest secure and, and enjoy in what you have? And you're, you know you're not inferior, you're not lacking, you have everything you need. How can you get to that, that place? Well, at the end of the book of Genesis, all of Joseph's dreams, uh, they come true. And so despite the fact that Joseph uh, had been sold into slavery, and after he had been sold into slavery, he spends time in prison after that, so he's He's a prisoner. He's a slave. He, through a series of incredible events, he ends up one of the most powerful people in, in Egypt because Joseph, through a dream, saw a famine coming. And so he warned the Egyptian leaders. They believed him. So he set aside all of this grain. And so now the world literally is dying of famine, and only Egypt has enough food. And Joseph, li- he's literally saving the entire world because he has food when no one else does. And so Joseph, as he's, he's giving food to the entire world, long come his 11 brothers who will starve to death without Joseph's help. And they come and they bow before him, just like the dream said it would happen. If that's you, what do you do? I mean, before we, we get all pious and say, oh, I would, I would, I would give them, no, no, seriously, what would you do? These brothers, they, they sold him into slavery. They cut off, Joseph thought he'd never speak to his father again, and even though the love was, was off, still that had to have been a meaningful relationship. He's lost his father, he lost his family, sold into slavery, spends time in prison. What would you do to the people who did that to you? You know what Joseph did to them? I mean, he saved their life first. He gives them food. I mean, there's there's a lot more that goes into this story, but just the summary. He saves their life. He gives them food. And then at the end, after they've moved to Egypt and they're reunited, the brothers are still afraid Joseph's gonna turn on them. At the end of Genesis, Joseph, we're told, comforted them and spoke kindly to them kindness. Joseph has not had a habit of virtue of, or a vice of envy dwelling with him. He, his brothers come who want to destroy his life and outflows kindness. How? Because Joseph understood what we should understand as Christians, what a life of faith should, should teach us. And here's how Joseph explains to his brothers why he will not harm them, why he's, he's not going to respond with envy. He's going to respond with kindness. Here's why he says, He's going to do that. He says, "As for you, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today." And you pull back from the story, and what you find is that the brothers they they plot the murder of Joseph, and as they're doing that, God is plotting the brothers' salvation. While the brothers are throwing Joseph in a pit, God is setting in an motion and plan a plan that will save their lives. While the brothers are raging with envy, God is pouring out his kindness onto them. And Joseph saw that because he lived by faith, which meant even though he had a terrible life for much of his life, in slavery and in prison, he can look out in this moment of, of a possibility of revenge or retribution, and he, do- he doesn't go there. He goes to kindness. He knew his God, and his God was a kind God. And if envy, if envy dies, where kindness dwells and kindness dwells with God, then you and I need to be near to God, to be people of kindness. And that's where the life of faith will lead you. If you're coming to God for him to save you and you can trust him to save you, you will encounter a God of kindness. And so the Apostle Paul, when he's trying to explain what salvation means, what it means that you and I are saved, he talks about it in a lot of ways, but one of my favorite is Ephesians 2. And he says he says this, he says, you and I, God saved us. If you're a Christian, he saved us so that in the coming ages for all eternity he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul says he saved you because he wants to spend eternity being kind to you, pouring out his kindness to you, and his storehouse is in immeasurable riches that will not run out. And so this morning as we think as we reflect as we wrestle with envy, um, What is it that makes you feel inferior? Or what is it that when you compare your life to others, you say, I don't have that, I I wish I had that, I I don't have that, I I don't have enough, they have more, why would God give them that? What you and I need to do is enter back into the life of faith to see the measurable riches of God's kindness poured out to us in in Christ. That this world is gonna give you a lot to look at and be envious about, so don't look there, look to Jesus and his kindness his immeasurable riches, that you may feel inferior, but Jesus actually went to the place of inferiority, that you may may compare your life against those of, of others, but Jesus went to the place of ultimate lack, of ultimate inferiority, the cross. He took all of our actual lack, our actual inadequacies. He took all of our envy and put it on the cross with himself so that he could pour out his kindness to us. So how, how could you and I ever feel a sense of inferiority that we don't have enough? We have the beginnings of the immeasurable riches of the grace of God poured out on us, and that will not stop. And what are you comparing yourself to? What, do you, what others have that you don't? Because in a billion years, is that going to matter? Like a billion years after Jesus has poured out his kindness onto you and me, are we going to look back to this year and say, but I didn't have that back in 2017? No, no. We'll have a billion years of the immeasurable riches of Christ poured out on to us. And so may we step into that life now. Envy, envy dies where kindness dwells, and kindness dwells with our, with our God. So embrace him. Embrace Christ. And let him kill your envy. Let us pray. God, we come now to the place where, where you showed your kindness. God, your body was broken, your blood was shed for us. And so in this morning, God, in this moment, would you would you pause the ways we feel we aren't enough? And would you remind us that you you sent your son to get us back. That whatever we lack, God, you've covered it with the blood of Christ. And God, it was it was irrelevant to you. You came for us anyway.